So the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the gospel reading uh, is the parable of the prodigal son, uh, probably the most famous of Jesus' parables, and for good reason. Um, and there's a lot going on. So we're going to go back and kind of walk through it, because I think there are some surprises there. There's a, a principle that, I, that I've learned uh, over the years is that when something becomes really familiar, uh, it actually kind of becomes unfamiliar. Um, the, the first thing to, to maybe uh, come to our attention is the context. Uh, Jesus is hanging out. Uh, he's actually eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the religious elite become upset with this. Now, that doesn't mean that it's, you know, God hates like the IRS or something like that. Uh, tax collectors uh, were notorious in the day and for good reason. Uh, they worked for the occupation force, Rome. They were selected because they could extract money from their fellow countrymen, basically selling them out. Um, in some s certain scholarly writing, you might refer to them actually as indigenous tax farmers. So they had a bad reputation and really they deserved it. And yet Jesus is spending time with them and people of other ill repute. And that bothers the religious elite. So uh, in response, he actually tells three parables. The first is about a man who has a hundred sheep and loses one. And so he goes, he leaves the 99 and he goes and finds this one sheep. And when he finds it, he comes back and, and he calls for his friends and, and they celebrate. The second parable is about a woman who loses a coin and probably a reference to like her dowry or something like that. And she looks all over the place. And when she finally finds it, she calls her friends and says, hey, I found my coin. Let's, let's celebrate. So each of those parables, and the third one is no exception, end with a party. And uh, I, I, th I think at this point, Jesus has a reputation of being a party animal, if you will. Uh, Luke specifically uh, points this out, that Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he's celebrating, which leads to the question, why? Well, from Jesus' perspective, and therefore reality, uh, Jesus is doing what God has, has, has long promised that he would do. He is bringing the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, basically what it looks like when God is actually in charge around here. He is living that, teaching that, and doing that. And so how could you not celebrate and throw parties? But apparently, the wrong sorts of people show up to these parties, hence the parables. So with the parable of the prodigal son, the third one, it's kind of like the climactic parable of these three. He begins it with, um, with, with something that would have sounded familiar if you, if, if you listen with uh, ancient Hebrew eyes. He says, a man had two sons. That should clue us in on something. Um, Abraham had two sons. Isaac had two sons. Those sons did not get along at all. So right off the bat, Jesus is calling out uh, from Israel's deep past and kind of giving a hint to the people hearing him that, okay, 
whatever happens, there's going to be conflict between these two. And this younger son asks for the inheritance that uh, is owed him when the father dies. And that's weird. It's uh, kind of without precedent as far as I'm aware. I mean, it would be a problem if I called my dad up and said, look, I know I'm in your will. Can you just give me what, you, what I'm going to get now? Of course, my dad would probably say, look, I'm planning on living to 103. There's not going to be any left. But that said... Um, it would be offensive if I did that to my dad. Um, even more so in the ancient world. Like, this is kind of a, a violation here. But what's even weirder is that the, the father does it. So is he like an enabler or something or codependent? I don't know. It, it just raises some questions that I don't actually have good answers for. So uh, this guy, this kid, gets all of his inheritance and he runs off and takes it to Vegas or whatever, like Nevada. Not Apparently, there's a Las Vegas, New Mexico. Um, I'm still learning. <laughs> and uh, he spends it all. Reckless living, there's a couple of ways to translate it. And eventually, he ends up in need. And, and the text itself uh, tells you that, that, or the story itself tells you that there's actually a famine that kind of compounds the problem. Now, I don't know if you noticed that there was a famine. It's, it's one of those details that we just tend to skip over. Uh, but legendarily, uh, several years ago, and this is a true story, uh, there was a group of seminary students, which is what you do, uh, how you study before you become a pastor. Um, uh, mainly from the U.S., and the professor um, kind of taught or read through this story, and then he had every student write down just one thing that stuck out to these students. And the American students all were very predictable, like, oh, the father uh, welcomed the son back, you know, unconditionally, the father loved his son or something. But there was a contingency of students uh, that were from, I think, like an area near Siberia, in Russia. And they, to a person, wrote, there was a famine, a detail that most of us gloss over. And I mentioned this on Wednesday because it, it played into our readings that, that famine for us just means like higher gas prices or, or you know, slightly empty shelves in the grocery store. Or famine or scarcity for, for me, as I was laughing at myself, means I still can't find the razors I like to use when I shave. Big deal. But for those students from Russia or, or really from the ancient world, the famine, a famine is a big deal. A famine is life or death. A famine can kill an empire. And so this famine hits, and this kid who took all of his money and spent it, is now in a lot of trouble. And the story goes that he, uh, he attached himself to uh, somebody there. Um, um, I think in, in this translation, the ESV, it said like he uh, was hired by, but really the, in, in Greek it means glued. Like you attach yourself to them and, and they'll provide and, and you do stuff for them. And he finds himself feeding pigs. So a scholar named Ken Bailey points out that if you're in this kind of relationship where you've attached yourself to somebody and they want you to go away, 
to preserve like their honor and your honor rather than just dismiss them and, and refuse to help, they might actually give you a task that you would not be willing to do. I think that's, that, that makes for a good explanation for what's happening here. Is the guy's like, okay, you're Jewish, go feed the pigs, maybe hoping to get rid of them. But finally, they, you know, as, as this kid is in this situation, he realizes that, that this is not working out, and really it's because he's about to starve. It's not out of remorse or repentance. He's not saying, I have made a mistake, but rather he's hungry. And then he realizes, you know, my dad has money. I mean, even the guys he hires, like, they have enough to eat. All right, I'm going to concoct a plan here. I'm going to go. I'm going to tell my dad that I've sinned against heaven and against you. And, and then I'll, I'll ask him to make me a hired worker, or like a servant or something. Now, if you notice, there isn't really any repentance here, is there? And, and in fact, if we're going to listen with like ancient Hebrew ears, when he says, I have sinned against heaven and against you, uh, there, there's a, a kind of a quote there, a, a repetition that actually goes all the way back to Pharaoh and Moses. When, you know, we're dealing with the ten plagues on Egypt and all of that, Pharaoh, uh, when he realizes that uh, there's a plague here and this is bad, he would say to Moses, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Like, in other words, I doubt the sincerity. This kid does not seem repentant. He seems hungry. And so he rehearses what he's going to say. I don't know about you, but in, in my experience, like if I'm rehearsing what I'm going to say, um, I would doubt my own sincerity. I remember years ago, um, I was in high school, we just moved into a brand new house. It was just built and I was lifting weights and apparently not thinking about things like physics and uh, pulled all of the weights off of one side of the bar because apparently I just forgot physics. And of course the bar swung and then bam, put a big old hole right into the wall in our brand new house. And it's like... <gasps> So, of course, I'm going into, like, damage control. Okay, this is what I'm going to tell mom. Not going to tell dad. This is what I'm going to tell mom. And, and it, it was not like, oh, I'm so sorry. I have violated, you know, whatever. No, it's like, oh, please don't kill me. So I tell my mom this rehearsed thing, and she's like, uh, I can't, that's so, you're smarter than that. Um, okay, I have spackle and paint. Don't tell dad. Um, and then we fixed it. But it, it's a rehearsed kind of thing. So this kid, he, he comes home. And his dad sees him. And his dad runs to him. The story says he has compassion. And he doesn't really get very far through his rehearsed speech. And I think that means it's because the dad just doesn't care. He just wants his son back, and he runs. There's a, there's a lot of speculation over why he runs. Um, there, there's, some have suggested there's a um, 
kind of like a, a Hebrew ritual uh, called a kitzatzah, uh, where they smash a pot, and, and there's this whole ritual, and basically it says, you have put shame on us, you are no longer part of our community, so if the person comes, like bad things can happen to them. I don't think that's what's happening at all. Uh, that ritual doesn't pop up in historical record uh, for a couple hundred years after this. Um, I think he just really missed his son. Um, and uh, he was willing, as a prominent landowner, he's willing to endure the shame of running. And he embraces his son. He tries to say his speech, it doesn't matter. He just wanted him. He didn't even care if the kid repented or said, Dad, I've done wrong, therefore, these are the things I'm going to do to make it right. These are the things that we'll put in place so that I don't make that mistake again. The father just doesn't care. That is a powerful image of compassion. And before he knows it, he puts a ring on his finger, which signifies that he's part of the family. He gets a a nice coat, gets shoes for his feet, and he throws a party. Just like the other parables, we are celebrating what was lost and is now found. All of that is precursor for the point of the story as Jesus is telling it. Because remember, the point is addressing the fact that the religious elite are upset that Jesus is partying with the wrong sorts of people. And believe me, they were the wrong sorts of people. So eventually, this older brother, he gets wind of what's going on, and he's furious. He doesn't want to take part in this party. And so his dad comes out to try and kind of like coax him in or talk him down. And he says, look, like he, he took everything that was owed him shamefully and then took it all to Vegas and bet it on red. And now you, you're going to throw a party for him? I've worked so hard. I have served you and this family faithfully. And you have not even given me a goat? Now, the symbolism or the meaning there is that for a goat, there's not a lot of meat on it. Like, it's good. I like goat. But it's it's not something that you will party with. So he's saying, I've done all of this. And he's done all of that. And you're going to reward him and not me. Now, here's the thing. That older brother is absolutely right. Plain as day. He is absolutely right. The son, the younger son, messed up. And there is no telling what that future is going to look like. He's brought shame on him and his family. The older brother has every reason to be angry. Now, we generally will, will see ourselves in one of those two children. Maybe we've got a past, we've sort of run off and, and made some very serious mistakes. We had a wild 20s or something like that. 
And then we find our way back, and so we have like this sense of like guilt or something like that. But I'm sure plenty of us find ourselves in the position of the older brother. Maybe you have a friend or, or family, more likely, who's kind of gotten themselves into trouble, um, gotten caught up in addiction, got uh, made some decisions that have just wrecked themselves or caused a ton of strife in their family. I've worked with families where this has happened, and they want to come back, maybe. But that's really complicated. You need some boundaries for that. You know, okay, if you want to come back and live with us or be a part of this family, that's fine. There are some things that we will need to do or things we will need to have in place so that you do not continue to cause harm to yourself or others. In other words, it's really complicated. But Jesus, as he tells this story, He ends it with his father, with the father saying to the older son, like, how could I not celebrate? Come and join us. And then it ends. There's no resolution. There's no punchline. We, as those hearing it, are kind of wondering now, like, well, what does the older son do? What does the future look like for the younger son? What's going to happen? And I think we can take this in, in any, uh, many different ways. It's a brilliant parable, meaning that it, it will tend to read us depending on where we are and what we, what we think about things and where we see ourselves. But the image here is one of a father who is desperately compassionate for his son who's made a lot of mistakes, doesn't really care that much if he's uh, repentant or not. He just wants him with him. And I find that image really compelling. A God that just wants me so much that he will grab me and embrace me wherever I am, no matter how hard I'm struggling. No matter uh, whether or not I'm convinced of my own problem or sin, even though there is a lot. He wants to throw a party as he welcomes the lost that is now found. And so the question kind of reverberating at the end of this parable is that there's a table that God has set for everybody. And you are invited to the party. But do you come? Do you show up even though there's going to be that person? Or those people who don't deserve their place at the table? And maybe they truly don't. Do you find yourself kind of feeling sheepish and going, man, I don't deserve to be at this table, but being embraced by a father whose compassion is hard to describe. I think the danger for us all, especially as people who are part of a church community, uh, the danger is to become the older son. That as we've been here a little while, we've got maybe our ducks in a row. Uh, it's easy to forget what it means to be lost to need that embrace from a father 
who doesn't care about where you've been, but just wants you. And as Jesus goes around and throws these little parties and eats and celebrates and brings the kingdom and teaches, like he will eventually go to his death for the sake of the lost brother and the brother who is sure that he's found. And when God raises him from the dead in this kind of surprise moment, Like he's setting the table of new creation, new reality and new promises, inviting everybody, including the people like you and me who just do not belong. So wherever you find yourself, in Jesus, on the one hand, if you find yourself lost, there is a father who will embrace you no matter what. It just doesn't matter. He just loves you. And for those of us who find ourselves convinced that we belong at this table, that we, like the older brother, we've done everything pretty right. We've got our ducks in a row. We're good citizens. We're good people. We're righteous. First off, no, we're not. And second off, there's a place for us in Jesus at this table too. Amen.